This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. When Dave Sanford's dad won a golf prize and brought him home a camera, it was the start of a wonderful photographic ride. While in college, Dave caught the eye of the NHL, and he was off and running. Now, it wasn't all that easy along the way. He moved heavy packs across the streets of downtown Toronto, worked through an NHL lockout, and gave a gift to his sister. Knowing that a lockout was looming, this is how amazing my sister is. She was like, no, I will stay on dialysis until the summer when you're done your season because you're about to go into a year without work potentially. So we waited until July of 04 for her to have the transplant. The lockout didn't officially begin until September, but at the end of the 04 season, I was under the knife a few days later donating a kidney to my sister. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from small business owners, cancer survivors, sports writers, and former major league pitcher, Chad Cordero. Off-season of 2010, after the being back up with the Mariners, is when my daughter passed away. So that really took it. So that took a huge toll on me. You know, like luckily my wife or my ex-wife, she was she was there with me at the time at, at, with Toronto. Um, Riley, our oldest, she was she was there. So I think that really kind of helped. But I don't even know. You know, I wasn't I was in a fog. I remember after it happened. I didn't. I didn't realize. You know what was going on. To be honest, like I had no idea. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't throwing. Wasn't playing catch. Wasn't working out. I wasn't doing anything. The rest of my conversation with Chad can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into part one of my conversation with Dave Sanford. I have got myself a Canadian on the podcast today. How are you, Dave? I'm great, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I think you make like my fourth Canadian. So I think after like five, I think I get like honorary citizenship or something. I'm not sure. I, I, looking at your list of, of guests, I think you need more Canadians. I'm yeah. trying. I'm trying. <laughs> or some honorary, other other honorary Canadians that I know that live around your neck of the woods. If you if you know some good Canadians, your your neck of the woods up there. You let me know, and we'll uh, we'll get them on. Sounds good. How's the world treating you? Pretty good of late, I guess. Um, as in recently late, it's it's you know uh, I, I'm kind of come through a little bit of a, a time with some turmoil in my life, but I'm getting back out there and you know getting behind the camera again and back to normal everyday life and feel good right now. Good, good. That's what we all need because I mean sometimes there's rough patches and we're yeah. kind of lucky that what we do we can kind of break from reality and go out, put that camera up, use it as a shield. And like for you go out to nature or maybe you got a damn hockey game. You got to go cover and freeze. took us off for three hours and shoot some hockey. You're absolutely right. No matter what I'm doing with the camera, it's, it's an escape, you know, even though it is my career, it's also my passion. And when I'm out in the field or the arena or whatever with the camera, the rest of the world just kind of melts away and disappears. Right. What would you be doing if you weren't a photographer? I, I honestly don't know. Um, I wanted to be like a rock star or a professional <laughs> athlete. Neither of those panned out. Um, I, I would honestly, I'd probably be working in nature to some degree because I do love nature and animals so much. Um, 
but it is a difficult thing to think of because it's all I've ever known. I, I got my first camera when I was nine years old. I started shooting then and I've never looked back. I went to school for photography, all of my jobs, aside from working for my parents, um, with their company, family company, um, all I've ever done is work in photography. I, I, you know, I, I went to school for it. I graduated. I started working immediately. I've never held, held a job other than being a photographer. Oh God. You and I are in the same boat, my friend. I love the fact that if it wasn't for your father winning the golf prize, a camera, you could have been a painter or a rock star. Like your dad's, (laughs) your dad's golf prize like kind of was a little building step. Absolutely. Little did I know back then that that was setting me on a a lifelong journey, a lifelong path. Thank God he played Um, golf and not like, you know, billiards or something or (laughs) something else. And and that he, I mean, he, he was able to pick, I remember he was able to pick a prize. um, And, and we had had this conversation a few weeks earlier about, me wanting to get a camera. So I'm very grateful that that stuck with him as well. And, um, and he picked that camera. Uh, do you have siblings? I have a sister. Yeah. Well, thank God she didn't want something. And he's like, Oh, you know what? Your sister's getting the doll. You're going to have to wait, Dave. <laughs> the next time I win a golf prize. <laughs> very true. Very yeah. true. Otherwise yeah. I, I, maybe I'd be flipping burgers at McDonald's right now. Right. Well, you know, We'll say this secretly on the podcast, but obviously you must have been the favorite. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was first, so well, I have did, to be. Yeah, and you're the first boy. You're the golden child. <laughs> <laughs> she just have to wait her turn. Yeah, exactly. What was the, the fire, the thing that like totally hooked you to photography? What was it? Um, geez, I... It's kind of a combination of things, if I, if I had to really think about it. When I was younger, um, and I just had this conversation with somebody, I think, yesterday or the day before. When I was younger, I was really into drawing, sketching, painting. I took art lessons as a very young kid. Um, you know, in school, art was always my favorite subject. Okay. And so I, I kind of came by photography naturally, I think. It was, a you know, just a bit of an evolution and, and I did. I loved animals ever since I can remember. Um, they were always my first love. So it, it was just one of those things where being out in nature, my, you know, my parents always encouraged that and going up to the cottage as a young kid and, and this ravine that is down the street from my home that I grew up in, spending all kinds of time in there. Um, yeah, I guess just you know, flipping through National Geographic, watching shows right. like Marty Stouffer's Wild America and BBC and things like that when I was younger really had an influence on, on me. So I guess it was just a matter of like, oh, people do that. I, I want to do that. I want to try that. And photography is an art form. So it all just kind of, you know, I guess at, at the age of nine, it was something I wanted to try. And, and clearly I, I got hooked on it. <laughs> You you know, it's funny. You said the National Geographic thing, and that really is like a big hook for a lot of photographers. And when I talk to kids today, they don't they don't look at that magazine. It's not readily available. Right. It's not at their parents coffee table, their friends, that big yellow bind. And that scares me because I think there's going to be a lot of kids that 
should be photographers that don't get the hook from National Geographic. They might flick on it on Instagram, but it's not the same. No, it's not the same. I, I and that's that's part of the sad death of the you know the publishing industry, and we've we've lived through this. You know, um, everything is becoming digital and online. And yeah, there's still something to be said to me about the tangible, you know, publication, the the book, the magazine, or, or whatever it is, to be able to pick that up and and feel the pages and flip through them. And, and I don't know, things seem to come to life a little bit more than when you're looking on a screen. And especially most people are viewing photography on a screen this big. Uh, yeah, which which drives me nuts. You know, like it, it it's. It's sad to see, you know, the the forms in which um, our work can be shared to to be sort of diminished to, to this. I know it's not just this, but but yeah, there was something to be said, something special about picking up that publication and and the the, the thickness of the pages, the you know, the texture and um, being able to read about those adventures and you know, it just yeah, it really did help set me on a path and and i do think that it is something that's missing today i I hope you know i have a nephew who's 10 years old he lives in australia he loves nature and wildlife um i I know that i've had an influence on him my sister and my brother-in-law have had an influence on him he lives like 500 yards from the ocean so he's surrounded by nature um he's gotten into photography he loves watching the nature specials on disney and netflix and things like that so it still exists. It's just in a different format. And I hope that my hope is that it can have the same impact on, on some children, but, but yeah, there was something really special about, you know, as you say, the Nat Geo, like that's, that's my go-to because it's true. That was, I can remember stacks, stacks like piled high of Nat Geo's at home. Yellow wall. It was just my, my grandparents got it. It was just big yellow wall. And I was like, Oh, let me look at this one. Let me look at that one. Yeah. It was exciting for it to come in the mail and, and to see what was next. And, you know, it was something that I always looked forward to and, and, and clearly had a major impact on, on my life. Well, let's crowdfund your uh, your nephew a scholar or a, a book subscription and that zero and get him that damn thing. <laughs> Good lord! I, mean, I tell you, for me, it was it was like literally seeing those photos come off the page. They were stunning to me, and I was not you know as as you are a nature photographer. I, that was not my forte. Even starting out, that's not what I really wanted to do. I was photographing my friends, you know, skating and BMXing, but. Seeing those photos, I was like, "How are they doing that? Is, are they in the that. water? Is that how close to the bear and like that mist in these mountains and of Chile and stuff? It was just, it was breathtaking. I have never seen anything like that as a kid, and it was just it it hooked me like a drug. Yeah, yeah, it was super inspiring, and oh. it's. It, it, uh, what's really cool too is i mean i think there are still some of those shooters around who i was admiring growing up that you know that that are still in the game you know Mm -hmm. it's it's they and that to me is a true passion for you know for what they do and 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 i i know that i have that passion and i hope that i can make a career as long as some of them have what was you know you you lived in an area where it was woodsy, right? And I've heard that you would go and take your camera out to the woods. What was that? Was that just for you to 
to make the woods your palette and take pictures? Yeah, I mean, it was it was more about finding the animals that make the you know make their home in the woods, um, and and I mean, I really stunk when I first started, you know, and and you're going out there with like a a fifty mil lens, right? Yeah, uh, like on a on an old Pentax K one thousand or something EM. I can't I can't remember the model number, but you know, like pictures of rabbits and deer where in the frame, you know, they would be the equivalent today of like five pixels or one pixel. And, you know, it's like, well, I, I got it. And you're just hoping you get closer and, um, you know, or, or, you know, just have something happen unfold right in front of you. And, but yeah, for me, it was, it was challenging myself in finding the animals and then trying to take a photo, obviously trying to improve on that over the years, um, getting away. I just enjoy being in nature and I, I can remember, not when I was nine, but as a, as a teenager and waking up in the summertime before going to work, like work for my parents Mm -hmm. and going down to the ravine and walking back and being like, I don't, I so don't want to go to work. I just want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to, I want to be able to wake up and, and just, just go take pictures, you know, and be out there. And so that really did drive me at a very young age. Cause like I, my parents know this. <laughs> I hated working for them. You know, sure. my, my dad just retired last year. He just turned 81. He just retired. Loves what, you know, still loves what he does. He still dabbles in, you know, mm-hmm. um, even though he's retired, but they loved what they, they did. And they, you know, the, the great thing about that was they always encouraged my sister and I to do what we love to do. And they never felt, we never felt pressured to follow their path and, and go into the family business. So they always, you know, they, they were our, our number one fans and encouraging us in, in our passions and what we wanted to do. So, so at a very young age, as I say, I was, I was really, um, you know, really influenced or, or inspired by, by nature I knew early on working a job that I didn't enjoy doing that, that I'm like, I cannot, I have to make sure that I'm doing something for the rest of my life that I love, like my dad, for example. So that really pushed me down that path, I think, to, to find the career that I, that I knew I would love and enjoy. Like I, I, you know, I, I couldn't fathom the thought of waking up Monday to Friday and punching the clock and dreading going to work like so many people do. They the do. The vast majority of the world hates their job. Right. They hate going to work. I'm the complete opposite. If if a billion dollars fell in my lap today, I'd only be doing more of what I'm doing now. Right. And I, I, I honestly would. I would have all the, the toys that I've ever dreamt of. I would be able to go the places that I've only dreamt of. I could hire assistants the way that I've dreamt of. Like, <laughs> All those things would, you know, like I say, a pile of money wouldn't make me retire. It would only make me dive further into my photography and be able to comp- try to accomplish all the things I'd ever dreamt of. I, I, exactly. I used to joke with my friends in college, like if I won the lotto, I would just convert some kind of RV with a wet lab and have gone around the country and shot. Like there wouldn't have been like, oh, I retire. I just would work harder but just smarter with more people doing all the other things I wouldn't have to manage. 
Exactly. And that's what's always told me that I, I truly love what I do. You know, like I, there isn't any amount of money in the world that would make me stop, you know, I, or another career or anything. I, I truly do love what I do. When you're in high school and you're in college, are, are you a hundred percent sure at this point, like photography, that's the path? I was, I was probably about uh, 90 some odd percent. Okay. Um, so I, I applied to universities and colleges for various uh, wildlife science or, you know, related programs or at the college level, like just not, not necessarily a science program, but working for the ministry of, you know, I'd end up with a contract working for the ministry of natural resources or something. Okay. So I believe I applied to four schools in, in those, you know, along those lines. And I applied to one university for photography. And part of my thought was like, okay, if I don't get into photography, hopefully I can get into one of these wildlife science based programs and I can maybe, you know, work in, in yeah. the natural world um, and work my photography into it somehow. Uh, the path was kind of made narrower for me because <laughs> I, I, I always struggled with my grades. I, I wasn't, you know, things never came naturally to me that way as a student. So maths and sciences were not my forte. Um, and I didn't get into three out of the four wildlife based programs that I applied to. I just didn't have the grades. Um, I, I, I was accepted into the photography program at Ryerson university, which now does it. They changed their name recently, but, um, they were the only, Canadian university offering a degree in photography at the time. And was it near you or was it some other part of the country? Two hours away, right downtown Toronto. Okay. So as you, uh, so as high school went on as well, like I've played sports my whole life and it's sort of like wildlife and sports. And, um, if I wasn't playing a sport, once I got to the, the high school level, if I wasn't playing a sport, I was photographing the sports I wasn't playing. So I, I had, a, again, I had a great passion and love for sports. And when it came time to make a decision as far as post-secondary goes, as I say, that path kind of narrowed for me and helped me make my choice because of the lack of grades in some areas. And then I, I, my wheels got turning and I thought, okay, well, the natural world is always going to be there. Ironically, I don't think the same way anymore, <laughs> uh, sadly enough. But um, the natural world will be there and I don't need a credential to show up to the forest or to the lake or to the ocean or whatever. Um, I can always do that on my own, but I can't show up to the Stanley cup finals or the Olympics or the world series or, you know, any professional sporting event and just knock on the door and say, Hey, I'm here. Can I have a spot to shoot? So I thought, okay, well, if I take the, the photography course hone my skills it's going to help me no matter what i i always continued shooting wildlife i never ever stopped but i i started to you know carve my pathway into the sports world because i thought all right if if i can get a career in professional sports then you know as i say the natural world world will be there and that will be sort of my sanctuary and my thing i do on my own and that's that's the decision i made and that so when I was in university, I channeled myself to be a professional sports photographer. Wow. Um, how, that, how were that, the courses? Were they what you expected? Um, no, it was a very, Ryerson, was a, there was a lot of art, 
you know, art-based programs. Okay. Um, but we had tech-based programs. We ha- we did have business courses in university, but again, um, you know, it's one of those things like 25 plus years later, I wish that I paid more attention, done better with it. Like, um, but anyway, overall, like, yeah, it gave me all, you know, all the skills, like I, I worked with strobe lighting and different things like that. So, and then one of the great things that happened to me was when I was in first year university, my main professor, Dennis Miles was his name. Um, Dennis was a sports photographer as well. So Dennis was, you know, connected, knew a lot of people. And because most of the students that were there were kind of in that artistic, you know, strictly art world. Um, Dennis really took me under his wing and uh, he was such an incredible mentor to me. Um, He got me a job in first year university, assisting the Toronto Maple Leafs team photographer at the time, Greg Abel. Whoa, that's big. That was huge. So I worked for Greg for four years throughout university I also volunteered at the Hockey Hall of Fame in my first year of university, and they offered an internship. And in second year, because of my volunteer, their internship was for a fourth-year student, but they offered it to me as a second-year student, and I held that throughout the rest of my university years, for three more years. So I worked under the photographer at the time there, Doug McClellan, who was fantastic for me. And um, between Dennis, Greg, and Doug, Um, by the time I had finished university, I had photographed 125 NHL games plus international games, all kinds of junior games. I had learned how to light rinks, you know, bringing in strobes and packs and wiring, doing all of that stuff. So before, you know, so I was applying that to my own shooting and doing it at the university level. So I was photo, you know, Friday nights would roll around at like three o'clock in the afternoon during rush hour. I'd be going to the school to, to, to sign out all the lighting equipment and (laughs) take it on a cart through downtown Toronto, through the subway. Like I say, at peak of rush hour on a Friday, because our home games are always on Fridays. And you're dragging speedo packs. Yeah. And I would go all the way around the subway line to St. Mike's arena and then take walk it over to the arena, and I would spend three hours of lighting, you know, setting it up to shoot one game, only to break it all down and catch the subway at like 1 a.m. back to university, back to campus, and then if I was lucky, get out for last call to meet my friends and, you know, have a drink or something like that. So most of my university years were like that. That's what I was doing. I was lighting basketball, hockey, um, sometimes volleyball, but it it just depended, you know, where, where it was happening and what was going on. And I started to do all the stuff for the university and then we would have shows each year. So the hall of fame, that's when I invited the the guys at the hall to come have a look at what my work that I was doing. And that's when they, you know, they were like, okay, he's got something here. So they offered me the internship and so everything, I worked really hard as a student. Like I was doing things as a student that nobody else was. Why know? do you like think that nobody, was? Uh, it was hard. It was a lot of work. Um, you know, most people don't want to go through the effort of showing up and having to, to light an entire facility when they could, 
you know, do use ambient light and still make an image. But I working with NHL photographers who were shooting on lights, seeing the difference, knowing that difference, it was also a way for me to realize that I, I can stand out from the rest of my class. I can stand out from anybody else my age that's trying to break into the industry. Um, I had the luxury of being able to, to use this type of equipment, so why not? Um, most That's the other thing, too. Most students, you know, if they went to other schools, like some of the colleges and things like that, or, you know, whatever route they took, they didn't have the luxury of taking out this type of equipment. So right. um, when you have thousands of dollars of lighting equipment, at, at, you know, at your fingertips, um, and somebody who's been willing to take the time to teach me how to use it and how to sync it all together and light a rank, um, it, it had a huge it, it did that that was so instrumental in getting me you know further down the path um, at a much faster pace like, yeah I mean you were getting pushed your curve was being pushed so much quicker than everybody else ab- absolutely like I, I always thought when I was in university and I didn't go to university till late um, I I was a 20 year old university student in first year you know we had grade 13 back then mm-hmm. so um, and I took another year after that and then, then did university. So I was going to school with people who were 18, 19 in first year, and I was 20. Um, and the, the other things that were happening at that time for me, um, like I say, I, just, I, just, I guess I've always had a really strong work ethic, and I wanted to do something, like I still try and do that today. Like what can I do that might make my work shine or stand out just a little bit more from the next guy because it's a competitive industry you know and and if if you're something that you can do that that gets your stuff to sort of stand apart from others um and also too like i say working around all these other people with with them seeing how hard i worked at it you know the extra lengths i went to like i say taking the subway over across the city with all that gear during the times that I did and doing that for year after year after year. And um, like I say, making those extra efforts, they, they really do make a difference. And I honestly thought like I, I won't, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get a job in pro sports by the time I'm 30. Mm-hmm. You know, I never dreamt that I would finish school and like, I'll never forget in, in the summer of 97, thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to work for my dad. This is going to be my last year of sort of summer freedom. So I kind of just took it easy for that summer. And then September 97 rolled around and I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm not going back to school. I don't have a job. I've got no prospects. I haven't looked into anything. And then the phone rang and it was, um, it was the hall of fame. And they said, um, Doug just uh, retired from shooting hockey we've got a job opening. Do you want it? And, uh, of course I jumped at it. And I think the next day I was down in Toronto signing a contract and, um, like any, you know, anybody in sports, I think you have to pay your dues. I will never forget how disappointing (laughs) that first contract was. (laughs) It was, it was for $10,000 to shoot an entire hockey season. Like, it was nothing, but so I had to continue working for my dad at the time and, um, continued working for Greg a little bit at the time. And, um, and then the NHL came calling, they saw what I was doing and I, I, I was doing a, a 
good enough job that it got them to take notice. And back then, Andy McGowan and Anita Chahowski were just beginning NHL images. I'd heard the rumblings, and they reached out to me and said, we've, we've seen what you're doing, and we want you to be sort of our, our foundation building block type thing of NHL images. And here I am 26 or 27 seasons later, and I haven't looked back. What was um, it like when they called, Dave? What were you, what was going through your head when Anita makes that call to you and's like, "Hey, buddy, <laughs> like to talk to you about something?" Absolutely surreal. Absolutely surreal. Like, I mean, I it still gives me chills when I think about it because I grew up such a passionate hockey fan. Um, I was very fortunate as a young kid from the age of seven when I saw my first NHL game with one of Wayne Gretzky's relatives, getting to meet Wayne after the game, get a stick, a jersey. Like, I I had early ties to the NHL as a kid, and, and that stayed with me growing up. I, I saw so many Edmonton Oilers games in the heyday, and I, as I say, I, I had these very fortunate ties to the sport of hockey as a kid. So for the national hockey league and the hockey hall of fame to reach out to me and say, we, we want you to work for us was just like I say, I still get chills when I think about it because that's, that's, that's it. You know, it's, it's yeah. team photographer, the league it's, it doesn't get any better than that. And um, to, you know, to not go knocking on their doors and have, have to know that I did something right to get noticed and them come knocking on my door. It still is very special to this very day. So tell me this, cause this was, this is a very interesting thing. And I don't think a lot of people understand that, you know, you're, you're dragging these lights all over the, all over the city to get them in. I, I could, I would, I would have paid a hundred bucks to know some people were looking at you on the subway. Like, what is this kid doing? I saw him last He's Friday doing the sweat, same thing. Sweat, yeah, yeah, sweating and gross. And like, yeah. Hey, come well. come around on Friday around 3.30. You're going to watch this greatest show ever. This kid's going to walk <laughs> in. <laughs> but yeah. what were you doing cre- creatively that was separating you from the guys who were already there, established, who had had maybe 10, 15, 20 years shooting around the league? What was that thing that made you separate? I, I think there's a couple things. So one of the things is just is, especially when it comes to the sport of hockey, knowing the game as intimately as I did. I don't want to say I know it as intimately today because I don't shoot it as much, but it still doesn't go away. Right. But knowing it as intimately as I did for so many years, knowing players' tendencies and things like that, uh, that really w- gave me an advantage. I think. Um, when shooting the sport of hockey. So there was that aspect of it. Um, Working for the Hall of Fame and spending hundreds of hours probably over the years going through all the old slides and cataloging things and organizing it and scanning it and everything. I used to see all like the the Trotsky brothers who used to shoot at Maple Leaf Gardens back in the day where they were mounting flashbulbs on the glass and you know, having the opportunity to actually get out on the ice if there was a fight and shoot it and using alternate angles and different things like that. So these were my influences. And, you know, and I think as we got into modern, more modern times, like looking at all the work that was coming out of St. Louis with, with Portnoy um, and, and Denny Brodeur, 
guys that were lighting the rinks in these very unique ways as well, like using just one or two light setups or maybe four light setups, having your background fade to black and different things like that. And then as, you know, as we got into more modern times, there were guys like David Clutho that were doing it and um, in, in the hockey world. And so these were all influences of mine. And because I had all this gear at my availability, I would, I would experiment. I, I wouldn't shoot everything the same all the time. You know, maybe, maybe 50% of the time I would, but uh, there'd be days where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to use one light or I'm going to use two lights or what if it's strongly backlit and I would just experiment. So I think that was also advantageous for my career because I was, I was willing to always try to make something look different in a creative way. You know, you, you, it's you know i always looked at the rink like it's sort of that's that's my studio it's big but right <laughs> um if i have the ability to manipulate light and do it the way that i want to do it i can make something look different from everybody else's so um and again too the influence of, of all the guys back in the day that that shot with remotes and everything so i started to try and do remote photography when i was in in university um you know, again, things that other people my age just simply weren't weren't trying their hand at. Yeah, I mean, you were you were coming onto the scene right as Pocket Wizard was exploding. Absolutely, and that was yeah. the most reliable remote at the time. Like that was it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's um, and I was always envious of. Uh, you know, all the SI guys and the flash wizards and everything like being able to program multiple cameras. And I know that they're a headache, um, but they were also little pieces of magic that um, really helped change the, the sports uh, shooting industry. Yeah, no, those things were, uh, were an unbelievable force when it came to what their, their imprint on photography was and what they were able to do. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I I love the fact that you were willing to take risk and create success from it. Cause I don't think a lot of people are willing to do that, willing to, you know, possibly fail being creative and taking those risks and chances and not just being another guy with a camera shooting the same thing and making the client happy, but doing the same thing. You were very young and willing to be wild and take that risk. And that's phenomenal. Thank you. Um, and, and I hope that I'm still, you know, pushing that envelope today. I, I've always said that in this, especially in this industry, the day that you think you know it all, you might as well quit. You know, like there's, it's an ever evolving, ever changing industry. And it's so competitive that like, I know whether it's the NHL or, or my wildlife stuff, like there's a line of a million people behind me that would jump in there just just like that, given the opportunity. So you always have to sort of keep pushing the envelope and keep pushing yourself and keep trying to be creative. And yeah, you've got clients that you have to satisfy, but there is no harm, I think, in in pushing that envelope and, and trying to do something that that does get you to stand out a little bit from the crowd. Dave, um, D- Dave, let's be honest. There's probably about 10,000 photographers that would feed you to a polar bear to be in your spot. So yeah, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's not pussyfoot there. <laughs> People would die to do what you get to do. So yeah, it's one we're, we're in a very, very fortunate job. We get to do what we do. We're not accountants. We're not dentists. We don't have to deal with misery. Like we are very blessed. 
We, we absolutely are. I, like the way I look at it is so much of my professional career, like I'm getting paid to travel, paid to go to these amazing places, paid to go to these events and not only have the best seat in the house, but behind the scenes of the house, you know, like whether it's a concert, whether it's a sporting event or whatever, like to be standing on the ice at the United center in the Stanley cup final in front of the players while the national anthem is being sung is like how, how many Chicago Blackhawk fans, how many hockey fans have got to experience that? Right. Like I, I don't take those moments for granted. Um, whether they're big moments or little moments, like all of those things, like, like I, I realize that people pay tens of thousands of dollars to do the things that we get paid to do. And that is the, to me, one of the most special things in the world. That's why I say, I love what I do. Like I, I, some, I'm like, I do, I have to pinch myself all the time to think like somebody, somebody's willing to pay me to play. <laughs> yeah, I know it's crazy. So what were the first five years like for you getting, you know, your feet wet in the business? I'm sure more clients were coming. You still want to be doing some nature stuff. What was that first, you know, cause that first five years for kind of us in the industry can make or break where, where we succeed. Were you, <laughs> were you okay? How were things going for you? Yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting five years for sure. It was an exciting time. Um, the first year I, like I, I have always said, I, I, as incredible as my four years of university was and the people that I worked under and everything, like I learned an absolute ton, but I also felt that working in that first year for mostly for the hall of fame and then, and the NHL, um, it was like baptism by fire, you know, like it's like, okay, now it really matters. Like I can't, I can't screw up because this isn't for myself. This is for a massive client that's paying me good money to, you know what I mean? To, right. well, I shouldn't say good money for that first year for my <laughs> first contract, but you know what I mean? Um, yes. Yeah. You're, 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 yeah. You're working for major organizations that as, as we just mentioned, there's a line of 10,000 people behind you that are willing and ready to take that from you. So you, you put this added pressure on yourself to perform. And, um, so it's a little bit stressful, but at the same time, I try not to get stressed out about it. And I, I don't think I do anymore. Like when I show up to a major sporting event or I've got a polar bear that's 50 feet in front of me, I'm not stressed out in those situations. I thrive in them. I love them. Um, it's, it's my comfort zone and it's, you know, people are always, I think, so worried about like, what if I don't get it? And it's like, well, if, if I don't get it and it's because I screwed up, that's one thing, but I'm, you know, when sports is a, and wildlife are, this is where they're kind of similar. Like we're just there to document and whatever unfolds in front of us unfolds. And I, I know that if something unfolds in the far corner and I'm kitty corner to that 200 feet away and I got people's backs or maybe, players, referees, officials, whatever in between me and them. And I didn't get it. Well, that's not my fault. Yeah, it sucks, but I don't put that pressure on me to be like, Oh, I failed. Um, and I, and I started to realize that very early on in my career. So, 
there, there's a, like I say, there's a pressure you put on yourself, but at the same time, you're, uh, for me anyway, I, it's a pressure that I guess I thrive under and I, and I enjoy. And, and as I say, I worked under people and around people where I learned so much in that first year. So I was just trying to be like a sponge, you know, whether I was around, like, so I worked with, um, two photographers at the NHL when I started there, Diane Sobolowski and Craig Melvin. Diane used to be the Hartford team photographer Mm -hmm. and Craig Melvin, brilliant sports photographer. He's worked for the WWE now for many, many years. Um, Those two people were instrumental again to me in in my career and and teaching me things. And they both been, you know, they were both at the time seasoned veterans, um, you know, and, and I'm just fresh out of school. So, they were fantastic to work with the team photographers that I came across, you know, and other photographers working for other organizations. Um, some of them were, like I say, hugely instrumental in allowing me to observe what they were doing or asking questions and things like that. And throughout university and early in my career, I also realized there's the two types of photographers, those, those who are very confident in their abilities. And I find the people that the more confident they are in their abilities that there's this friendliness that comes along with it because they're like, they're more open to questions or allowing you to see what they're doing. Right. And then there's those who are like, this is a, you can't see what's behind my magic curtain here. You know, like (laughs) I'm not going to share that with you. They can come off as crass and cold. And some people are just mean about it too. Sure. I've, I've experienced that. So I always said to myself, I will never model myself after the guys that I would, go to looking for advice who I felt turned around and barked at me. I always wanted to be like the people that were an open book and instrumental in in helping me start out on my career path. And and I hope that I've always been that way for others as well. So those first few years, I was just, I was a sponge trying to absorb and learn what I could from the people around me as, as well as trying to, as I say, create my own identity. Um, I, I definitely, I think in those first five years, it's probably when I did my least amount of wildlife, um, simply because I was so focused on hockey. Like I was just working for the NHL. I, you know, I was shooting an average of 125 games a year, plus all the special events and everything like that. Um, international, junior, you know, so I, at, there was a time there where I was shooting somewhere in the neighborhood of, 150 to 200 hockey games a year um, at at those various levels. So, and that's on film and I was on film. Yes, exactly. So, so it was busy and I, I still would take time when I go to the cottage in the summer, I would always make time to go out in the lake and I'd photograph looms and herons and whatever I could find because I still enjoyed to get away. But I just kind of did it for my own. And those images would just kind of sit, you know, in the archive type thing. I didn't do, a lot with them at that time um but it was yeah it was it was a really crazy time and then you know nhl images had a point where it only after i think three years or four years it was i think it was 2001 i remember being i think it was 01 and draft at florida and anita coming and saying we don't have the funding for our department it's falling apart so that was when they went and partnered with getty Mm-hmm. And um, here we are now, twenty some odd years later, and they're still partnered with Getty. Um, so that again started to change my career a little bit. 
Um, and I started to freelance for Getty as well. And, and then that opened up the door to other sports. Um, so, you know, whether it was motor, you know, motor, uh, motorsports or golf or tennis or um, soccer, football, baseball, basketball. Um, so it, 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 in a weird way, it was kind of a blessing in disguise because I think after doing as much hockey as I was doing, you do get sort of burnt out on going to the rink. You need to change things up. Oh, and sure. This was definitely a way for me to change things up meet other people, see other parts of the world, uh, shoot other sports. And, um, and then, but, but again, it was still very hockey dominated. And then, you know, fast forward a few more years to 2004 or five when we had the first lockout. And that was when I really realized I'm like, Oh wow. Like most of my eggs are in one basket and that basket just broke. (laughs) I mean, Um, was that terrifying? Yeah, it was. And at the same time, I, we were talking about, uh, you know, before we started recording, um, at that same time, my sister has had a lot of health issues and she, she had her kidneys removed earlier in 2004. And right from the outset, a couple of years prior, I was like, if you, if you need a kidney, I'm like, I'll get tested. I'll do whatever it takes. So Fast forward to 04, she needed a kidney, and she could have had that surgery in January of 2004. Knowing that a lockout was looming, this is how amazing my sister is, she was like, no, I will stay on dialysis until the summer when you're done your season because you're about to go into a year without work potentially. So she waited until 04. So we waited until July of 04 for her to have the transplant. Um, and you know, so that was sort of how my, my hockey lockout year began was with, a you know, like the lockout didn't officially begin until September, but right. at the end of the Oh four season, I was under the knife a few days later donating a kidney to my sister. And, um, so it was, that was a really strange time as well, because I'm out of work, I'm recovering and all these uncertainties and, this is where the I'm very grateful for the the crossovers that happen in in, in the world of sports and, and traveling and the people you meet. Um, my new old boss at the time, I guess Jessica Tomeo, who worked under uh, briefly under Joe Amani at the NBA, was then now and then worked under Anita. She just was brought back into the fold um, post lockout or partway through the life, I forget, I can't remember exactly, but long story short, <laughs> because of her relationship with Joe and Joe knew my work, Joe reached out to me and said, Hey, we can, we can give you some work during the lockout. So that began a 13 year run with the NBA. Um, mostly shooting in Toronto, but yeah, I got 13 seasons of working, um, not every game, but a significant number of games with the NBA. So it, it just, as I say, things just kind of, it's, it's always this winding road that evolves and changes over time. Like when I was in university, I never, you know, I didn't, I never thought about working for the NBA and never thought about, you know, Getty didn't even exist then, you know, I never, you know, it was, it was, I was so hockey centric. So it was really cool to see my sports evolve and, and, 
over time, all the, all the different sports that I've got to do as a result of, um, I guess as a result of that lockout. So how, how did your hockey, again, very, very much helped that you were shooting hockey on strobes. How did that carry over to shooting NBA on strobes? Um, it certainly helped. Like, and, and that's, I, I will add shooting on strobes. I think for as long as I have for, and, and starting to do it as early in my days as I did in university, it really forced me to be a better sports shooter at sports, a, a better action shooter. Um, because you only have that one frame every back then for the most part, I'm going to say two seconds, mm-hmm. maybe one and a half seconds. If, if you had really, you know, a really good setup, but a second and a half or two seconds in sports is an eternity. So you know full well, if you take a photo and you've shot before that peak moment, like say it's a, a guy who, who's cutting in on net and he's going to deke the goaltender and you've got him just before he dekes the goaltender. And yeah, it's a nice photo, but then he goes around the goaltender and he's reaching on his back end. The goalie sprawled out and, or the pucks up in the net bulging the twine or the water balls going off the net and you, you, you can shoot, but you're just going to get a black frame. So you really, that's where I say shooting and being the fan of hockey that I was, it really helped me because I knew so many tendencies of players where they would be on the ice, what they were going to do. So that anticipation helped me to really nail down my timing of, of shooting with one frame every second or two. So it forces you to be a better shooter, to be a more of a student of the game. And it was no different basketball. Like I grew up watching basketball as well. And I wasn't as big of a fan, but I'm a fan. And so it wasn't completely foreign to me. I played basketball as well. So it was a pretty, pretty smooth transition, I think. Um, And again, just, and it was, I was excited, excited to be able to have the opportunity to be sitting on the baseline you know, courtside and, and shooting the NBA, you know? Um, and, and again, just opening up a whole other world to me, um, because I think the NBA is very different from the NHL. Um, you know, and it's, but anyway, yeah, it was a lot of fun to be able to have that opportunity to carry over from hockey into, into basketball. Um, and I was also getting an opportunity that I didn't, you know, that for something different, because I was doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff in Toronto. Ron Train was the team photographer. Mm-hmm. He was their main guy. And I was there to sort of compliment what he was doing. So it was sort of like, okay, he's going to do his thing. And I'm going to, I'm not going to do the same thing. I got to do something different. Right. You know? right. And, and so again, it was, it was allowing me to be more creative and, and sort of Joe was great that way about like, Hey, just, do your thing, you know, like this is why we hired you. Yeah. You be you and let him do what he does. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll take all your images and it'll be wonderful. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) When did you start to feel your style? Like you were like, okay, this is Dave's style and people would start to recognize your style. Uh, gosh, I don't know if it, I I can't even still say if, if I have a style when it comes to my sports work, I, I don't know, um, but people certainly. It was sort of like I. I, be, I, I think I, I, I. I'm really proud to say that I became known for getting the moment. Okay. You know, um, everybody would always be like, 
you know, I, I'm shooting like press guys. I'm shooting on either side of you, these guys, and they're shooting whatever it may be, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve 10, 12 frames a second. And they're like, you've got it. And we don't, how the hell, you know? <laughs> and it's like, you know, I, I just, I would really pride myself on getting that key moment. So puck in the frame was, was kind of, you know, my thing, like for, for the longest time, it was like, Oh my God, like, You've, you've got, you know, the one frame and you always manage to get it. And that that's other people talking about my work. So I, I just became known for that, I think. And, um, but yeah, as far, I don't know if I have a style, like I, you know, okay. and when it came to lighting, like using different remotes and that, like, like I say, I would always just mix it up okay. if I could. So I, I didn't have one look that I would always go to. I don't, I never had a, a look when it comes to processing because I'm not processing my own sports work. My editors are working on that and pushing it out. Right. Yeah. um, Did you, did you find the switch from film to digital when you did that? Did you find that challenging? Cause on strobes, it was a very weird time. Yes. Very challenging. Um, I was so hesitant at the time. Uh, I was, I, feel like I was one of the last people in, in the industry, uh, in the sports industry to convert. And there was a, a brief period there for a season where I was shooting film and digital. Mm-hmm. Um, cause the hall of fame still wanted film, but getting the NHL wanted digital. Um, you know, there, there was issues with, you know, just things looking funky, right. um, colors being funky, not being able Obviously, to just the quali- yeah, the quality and not yeah, being able the to quality just wasn't there. Oh, even on um, lights, it, it even, wasn't even there. On lights, right? Um, Can you imagine being issues. available? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sinking issues with the strobes, oh. um, you know, and and getting the the banding and and different things like that. So having to fine tune. And, and for the longest time running sync cable where whatever arena I was working in, because you could get that, you know, instead of shooting at like a two fiftieth of a second, I could get up to like a four hundredth of a second um, if I was hardwiring. So going into arenas and dropping wires from the catwalk down to my position or running them around underneath the stands in years worth of stale beer and peanuts and getting dirty and gross and you know all of that extra work that you would go through just to make sure that you were giving yourself the most optimal lighting conditions um because it was you know it did make a difference if you could only shoot at a 250th of a second when you're shooting strobed and you would get ghosting and like i say the banding and different things so it was it took a lot of years to you know to to to, to really for the digital era to, to become what it is obviously today. And uh, like, I don't care what anybody says. I can go back and look at some of that stuff that I shot on like Fuji Velvia and look at it under a loop and just be like, Oh, oh like, yes. It, it just, the, the colors, the saturation, skin tones, everything was just, there was something there that just isn't quite the same even still today in 2023 in this digital era. Yeah. And I don't know if that's our, and I've had this with a lot of photographers who did that both times. I don't know if it's in our heart, if it's some weird thing in our head, we don't want it to be, but you put those slides on a light table and my heart skips a beat 
Yeah. But I open up photo mechanic and I'm like, eh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I, I, I hear you. But at the same time, all that said, would I go back to film? <laughs> never. 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 <laughs> never. Not a chance in hell. Behind me. Yeah. It's behind me. There's just too many, there are too many other advancements, you know? And when I say like, now, if I look at an image created by my cameras versus a film, like, I mean, it's such a fine line, you know, but there was a time where it's like, Ooh, geez, like, are we sure this is the right direction to go in? <laughs> you know, did I really want to do this? I know it's, um, what we're able to pull off now and, you know, you can, you could just the qualities just phenomenal and being able to pull things out and shadow detail and highlights and everything. It, it has come a long way. It's, it is a certainly a lot better than that early digital with the crop factor. And like you said, you could cut in to the sensor because it wasn't anything there. So that black band wouldn't actually go into nothing. So you can get that extra two thirds of a stop of sync at 400 and it, would freeze that ice just a little bit more and there would be no ghosting whatsoever. Those were, that was, that was cherry time, cherry time. And I am blessed that you are, that we got to live both sides of it. Yeah. I don't think the kids Uh, understand how just magical it was to get your slides back or to see them or the effort and how due diligent you had to be on marking it two thirds of a stop push you know, making sure that if you shot a Hasselblad and you had all enough film for that one and you didn't bring enough brick for this one. I mean, there was so much that we had to be responsible oh, for then. There was, absolutely. And you mentioned about, you know, waiting and getting your, your film back. That was always like, you know, it was, a, it was like a mini Christmas. You know, <laughs> like 40, it would be generally 48 hours after the game. You know, or not, not, not quite 48 hours, but like living where I live, I'm two hours from Detroit, Toronto, Buffalo, where I've covered most of my sports over the years. And you know, I might get back at 1, 1 1.30 a.m. And, and you're kind of wired to go to bed uh, 2, 3, 4 in the morning. Because it is, it's hard to come down from that stuff. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, and then I'm driving home and you're driving through snowstorms and all that stuff. And you get home. But I would still get up at like eight o'clock in the morning to drive to the lab to drop it off. And then because I, I, well, it shouldn't, it wasn't always this way because sometimes if stuff was crazy urgent, it was just going into a FedEx pack and it was going to New York. Mm -hmm. But if they, they gave me the luxury of processing it here at home so I could see what I was doing, which was awesome. So I would drop it off at the lab at like eight o'clock in the morning so that the next day, so about 36 hours after the game, I could go pick it up. And I couldn't wait. Like, I'd be in the lab with the loop or I'd, you know, I built a light box with my dad and I'd come home and I would look at the stuff on the light box. And, yeah, it was, it was like a little mini Christmas because you were. You were excited, you know, and I would come home. I would record games that I was shooting so I could come home and then watch them the next day and pause it where – the strobe would flash because I'm like, I wanted to see if I had that moment exactly. You know what I mean? And like, and then you're trying to envision it from the angle that you were at or where your remote was. And sometimes it would come back and you'd be like, yes. And then other times, most of the time it would come back and you'd be like, man, like I thought I nailed that, you know, like, so 
there was something special about that era and, you know, versus like shooting it and dropping your camera and being like, oh, okay, got it, you know? And, um, you know, and again, that, that's, that all plays into the short attention span of people today. And, um, you know, and if I can say one more thing about this golden era that we lived in or, or had our career, had our careers overlap uh, with the film and digital era, I think we've had the best of both worlds. Um, I honestly think it, it has made, I'm not saying that anybody who's come along and just in this digital era, isn't a better photographer than any of us, but I truly think having to learn a camera in, in manual, having to learn how light works, how to read light, how to manipulate light, um, all of those things and, and shooting single frame, all of that forced me, didn't know it at the time, but it may, it's made me a better photographer. It's made me a better shooter. And, and I do, do genuinely, genuinely think that in this era today, I wish, like, I don't know what it's like at photography schools and, and classes and things like that. But I've always said that, you know, everybody should still have to put their camera into manual mode and shoot it like single frame, like it was an old film camera, right. you know, and learn how to use a light meter and read light and manipulate what ambient light is there for you. Or if you're setting up your own studio, like how to manipulate that. And then too many people nowadays just rely on the technology that's in their hands and let them, it just does it for you. Mm -hmm. I don't have to think about this. I can do it and it's good enough. Yeah. And people often ask, like, why, you know, like maybe why, why have they stared at, why have I been staring at this picture for five minutes? Or what, why did I get, why did this picture stop me in my tracks versus just going past, you know, and it's, it's, those are those little intricate, you know, details and things that I think that we've been fortunate enough to learn that help our work to stand out because, we did learn how to manipulate light. And like I said, there are people that still learn this, but mm -hmm. I, there's a lot of people out there now, especially the hobbyists who are like, yeah, I, I don't have a clue what it does. I just, I just let it, you know, point and shoot. I just compose. That's right. it. And they don't care to learn. Um, and then there are those who do care to learn, but they're intimidated by it. And it's like, it really, to me, it is like when people are like, oh, no, I, I have to shoot an aperture, aperture priority or full auto or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but learn. Like, like it's not as scary as you think. It's not. You know? there's, there's basically, there's there's kind of like three elements. It's your, your shutter speed, your film or ISO speed, and your aperture. And they're pretty basic concepts, I think. And, and, and once you just stop, think, slow down, I, and that's what I try to still tell people to this very day. Like I encourage them to put their camera into manual and start playing around, go out in your backyard and practice and do all those things. Cause it will make you a better photographer. It will. And the one thing is I think people don't understand when we used to put in strobes, we didn't just, they weren't plug and play. Yes, you had your spots you had to put them in. You'd set the power to what you needed, you wanted it to be. But then you'd still have to go down to the rink, meter it, fire off, make sure you're at 5.6 down here and you're 5.6 here and everything's right. But then you could start manipulating the light. You can turn the light off. You could put a gel on. You could do this. You could do that. When you shoot ambient, whatever that arena gives you, it gives you. And that that's where you start to look around and go like, 
well, I'm sitting with all these guys and they're just really doing the same thing. Everybody's yeah. got the same ISO, same shutter speed, same <clears> app. <throat> like it's, there's no creativity involved. And I really felt like I got to be way more creative with the strobes. And yes, it was miserable and painful and caring. And, you know, I remember I grew up at the forum and they did not have an elevator and it was like CrossFit class going up those goddamn stairs, you know, but that's the way it was. But I got to turn packs on and off and turn heads and make pictures. And these kids don't really understand today. And I hate to sound like I'm old man on the cul-de-sac, get off my lawn. But you know, it's like we, you're, 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 you're taking a bunch of photos. We were making, and we still are. If you have a strobe, you get to make stuff. Right. It really okay. does separate. I'd love to hear you say that. There's, there's a photographer that I know you, you probably know uh, his name, at least somebody, Frank Gunn, who's worked for the Canadian press yep. for mm-hmm. many, many years, award-winning photographer. And years ago, Frank was the one that, that changed the way I talk about pictures. And that's the term that he would use. You make a photo. You don't take it. You make it. You are creating this. And I truly think it's, it, it really, that, that term making a photo really applies to what you were just talking about. When, when you're not just showing up and using, you know, shooting this, this ambient light, like everybody else is like when you, have that initiative to to light an arena and and be as creative as you can with that light manipulate that light like you say whether it's turning them some off or or angling the way you do power different power levels gels all those things like you're you are creating your image mm-hmm. and um you know and I, I i do try and take that out into the field with me in my my wildlife as well like i'm using ambient light out there but i love it when you get you know, those days where you do have all kinds of crazy light to work with and, and move yourself around higher, lower, whether you have to be in front or back or whatever. But I've, it's really taught me to learn how to manipulate the light that is available and use it to my advantage. Right. And I, I find that often a lot of people don't, they don't walk up to a scene and see it that way. They, they don't have that creative vision to be able to manipulate the light that is available to them. Um, and it's just more of like, like I say, they just hold up the camera and let it, let it do its thing. Um, and they just worry about their composition. So (laughs) when, when did you start to find yourself getting back into nature, right? Your your five year period, you said you had shot a lot less because you were really grinding And that makes yeah. sense. You're trying to hold on to this client and, and create more clients. When did you find yourself getting outside of an arena again? 2012 was when I really started to do it. Like I said, I never stopped it. I just right. didn't do it as much. But 2012 was when I really, uh, really started to get involved with my nature photography and start to think to myself, like, okay, I – this is something that I've always dreamt of and something that I do want to pursue. I'm just not sure how to, how to go about it. What level of my, you know, how much energy and time do I have to put into it versus my sports? Cause I want to maintain my sports. Sure. You don't want to lose it. Right. But it was 20 around 2012 when things in the sports world started to shift and change a lot. It really started to happen for me 
coming out of that lockout in, in the 05 season, um, 05, 06. So I, I, I always say that I was kind of, I was forced to take the path that I did in a way, which is good. It's not a bad thing. Right. Um, sometimes you need that little extra push. Um, because as I say, I always dreamt of being a wildlife photographer and in and around 05, 06 was when the NHL implemented the team photo program. So they were starting to pool. They, they, you know, signed a deal with all the clubs in the league and, and all those team photographers where it's a shared ownership where they're now submitting all their content to the league and whatever the league's getting or sharing with them, those clubs. So that, that started to have an immediate impact on me. So rather than, you know, like for example, Ray Bork was traded and they put me on a plane and fly me to Edmonton for his first game. Well, we now just have to use the Edmonton Oilers team photographer. So that, you know, we, why spend thousands of dollars to fly Dave West and put him up in a hotel and pay him a rate when there's somebody already there. Right. So and we own his stuff, right? Right, right. So it went from doing like 125 games a year to like 100 to 60 to 40 to 25 to, you know, and it just, it just became less and less and less from 05, 06 through till about, you know, 2015. But it was 2012 when I started to say to myself, no, I really need to start making some some headway into my nature and wildlife if, if this is something I truly want to do. So um, that's, that's when I really started to put more of a push and, and focus a little bit more on my nature and wildlife was 2012 and devoted more time to it and just trying to find my niche or find my way there. And um, it wasn't until 2015 when I was – going down to Lake Erie, um, which is 30 minutes south of me here. And I started to, I, I, I was shooting the waves on Lake Erie, which were really gnarly and nasty in the fall with the storm seasons that come. Now, what, and, what drew you to that? What, what made you say like, Hey, let's get in the car and go down to the giant lake. <laughs> well, I, I, I was already shooting in the ocean prior to that. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, my sister and her family live in Australia. So I've been going to Australia and like I say, I, I, I was trying in 2012 was when I, I, you know, I, I've always loved the water. Mm-hmm. I, I've been a water dog my whole life and lakes, oceans, whatever it is. I love it. Love marine life. So in 2012, it was a trip to Hawaii and going out and photographing humpback whales that really started to, like I say, set the wheels in motion for me then. And then I, got to the point where I was like, Oh, I want to, I want to invest in a water housing. So I, I borrowed a water housing from a friend and then I started to rent them and then, um, talked to Donald Morale, who I knew through Getty and Donald being a great water photographer and asking what he used. And, and he was with Aquatech. And so he encouraged, you know, that was the path I went down and now I'm an ambassador for Aquatech. Um, so it's just cool how all those things work, but that's it was my love of water and again wanting to push my limits and getting into the water with my camera versus just being on the shore or on a boat shooting so again you know i can go back to my university days where i was just always trying to push my limits and stand out from the crowd and um 
after being in Australia in 2015 and shooting with a, a good friend of mine, Warren Keelan, who's a brilliant ocean photographer. Um, Warren was the one who really took me under his wing and, and taught me how to shoot in the water, how to shoot in the ocean. And when I came back to Canada that fall, it was like, I want to, I, I know what's been going on for years in Lake Erie at, at this right. time of the year. And now I finally have the equipment and the knowledge and the know-how to start tackling this myself. So that's, that's how that came about. And it was just me really missing the ocean activity and, and saying, okay, well, here's a great lake. And, and I know, you know, what, it, what the potential is here. I just didn't know at the time how that was going to change my career. I didn't know, like, I'll never forget driving home from the lake that first day. It was the 12th of November, 2015. And there was a big, huge windstorm when, you know, days where we get like 20 to 25 foot waves on the lake and going down there and shooting it and driving home. And my parents were in Australia visiting my sister and her family and my dad calling me knowing I was going to the lake and asking me, how did it go? What did you get? And me saying like, it was wild. It was crazy, but I don't know how well this will do. I don't know how well people will gravitate to these gnarly, nasty, mean looking waves. Like it's just, it's dark. It's moody everything that people were doing on waves was nice curling barrels and turquoisey blue water. Um, so I, I just, you know, I'm like, okay, well, whatever, this is what I've got. I like it. It looks cool. And I started putting it out there on social media. My friend Warren saw it. He was like, man, this is wild. This is gnarly. I've never seen anything like it. And he encouraged me to write my own article and do a post on board Panda. And because he had done that for his work and it really springboarded him to another level. Okay. So I took his advice and that's what I did in early December of 2015. I produced 20, 20 images from this series. I then wrote an article about my experience. I shared it on board Panda. I remember going out to a junior hockey game here at the London Knights that night on a Friday night. I posted it. I went to the hockey game. I came home like four or five hours later and I remember opening it up on the computer and looking at it and being like, holy shit, like 250,000 views on this and like all these comments. And then it just kept growing. And then the next day, the emails, my phone started ringing, like the interviews. And it was like overnight success after 40 some odd years. <laughs> um in that side of my career. Right. Like it just, it, it, it just, it opened up this door and what was great about it is it being, you know, nature related. Once interviews started happening and people asked me for imagery and they started researching me, they started to see that, Oh, this isn't just a one hit wonder. He's got, he's got this whole other portfolio of work behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think that really helped at that time. Um, that I never, ever stopped shooting my nature and wildlife. And, um, my, you know, the sports thing was there as well. It was very well established. So having an established name in the photo industry also helped. And, um, and yeah, and then that's when the gears really started to shift. And I was like, okay, I'm now getting offers to essentially travel the world and work an assignment in my nature and wildlife side of things. And what was really heartbreaking was in January 
late December of 2015, I was asked to go to Antarctica in January of 2016 for a couple of months on an assignment. And I had to turn it down because I had six or seven days of NHL work lined up during that time. And it was like, Oh my gosh, I have to turn down Antarctica because I have, you know, and it's like, I, I, I mean, the NHL all-star was one of those things. Like mm-hmm. it's not like little things, but right. it was like two month assignment versus the equivalent of about seven or eight days of work, you know? So it was somewhere in that 2015, 2016 time when I, approached my my current boss at the NHL and was like, okay, I I need to make a change here because I'm having to give up three, four, five-week assignments because I have two or three games scattered out here and there. Right. And it's not – I I have to look out for myself, but mm-hmm. I don't want to give up my hockey. So that was kind of when we came to the decision. It's like, okay, I'm going to be the special events guy. I was always doing those. The special events for the league – are at a time when I can look on my calendar and generally know around when they are. The only thing that's really a little bit uncertain is the outdoor games and where they're going to drop those in maybe. Sure. But it, it allowed me an opportunity to look ahead of my schedule and be like, okay, I, I know that I generally need to be around at this point in time for the NHL. And then that gave me the time to, you know, go and explore further my, my nature and wildlife side of things. Um, so now that's, that's for the last like eight years, essentially that's how it's been where I just work special events for the NHL. I haven't worked for the NBA in that time or Getty or anybody else. Um, the NHL is basically my only sporting contract left. And, uh, I feel I have the best of both worlds at this point. I've got my, I've still got a, a, a a foothold in hockey. It's only one piece of the pie, but it's, it's the best piece of pie, you know, to be able to do all-star awards, Stanley cup, the outdoor games, like all the, all the big events. Um, and you know, I still get my fix of hockey and I'm, I'm excited to go to the rink, you know, cause I, I'm not there like I always used to be. So it's, it, there's an added level of excitement and, and I'm, I'm, I feel my creativity is, is, sparked a little bit more and you just you know it's you get to see people that i don't see as often and and all of those things are fun and exciting and then it gives me you know so i'm working maybe six to eight weeks out of the year for the nhl in total and then the rest of my time is devoted to my nature and wildlife stuff um and i've been able to in that last you know the last eight years travel to places i never ever would have dreamed of because of my wildlife photography so um I, I, if I could keep it this way for the rest of my career, I, I, I will, you know, I, I mean, I always hope that I'm producing uh, great enough work that the NHL will always have me that way. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's a very competitive industry and I'm very grateful to them for, you know, like I say, this is my 27th season with the NHL. So um, I've seen a lot of people come and go and, and to, to still be there and involved the way that I am is really, really special to me. Um, and uh, as, as I say, it, it's given me a great opportunity to, to grow my nature and wildlife uh, side of things. Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with Dave Sanford. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. 
Remember, you can follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows at the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.